Well, we're continuing in our series on the book of James. If you haven't been going here uh, to Valley Bible Church for more than six months, and you wouldn't know that because the last installment of this series is like eight months ago. But, <laughs> but uh, it continues, yes, and it will be completed one day, I promise. <laughs> um, but uh, today uh, we're looking at when ducks suffer from identity crisis. When ducks suffer from identity crisis. I don't know if you've ever heard of the saying, if you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, well, then you might just might be a duck. If you walk like a duck, and we could even say it together, and you talk like a duck, then you just might be a duck. Um, we use this uh, phrase to illustrate things like you aren't necessarily what you say you are, but you are what you do, right? It, it shows us that labels aren't the measure of true identity of a person, but actions are. If you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, then you might be a duck. It's when you're having a discussion with your spouse where you're claiming to not be a pack rat. And in the discussion, it comes up that half of the things that fill the garage are your things that you haven't even looked at in the last 10 years, but you find that to be normal. Or, or when the garage sale comes up and it's time for you to unpack your garage to sell things at a garage sale, but your spouse thinks it's like pulling teeth for you to sell anything because everything has sentimental value to you. But you think that is to be expected. Doesn't that happen in every family's house? If you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, you just might be a duck. Or, or it's when you declare yourself a safe driver. Uh, you're the person who gets behind the wheel of a car and not only do you allow for three car links between you and the car in front of you, you allow five card links because in the effort of being safe, you want to be even more than three car links, right? You're the guy who you're driving on the road and not only are you making sure that you don't make any mistakes, but you're anticipating mistakes that others might make. For instance, that guy to the left, if for some reason he were to uh, 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 look down or check his radio and swerve into my lane, I can go into this lane over here. You're like thinking about things that haven't even happened yet. You're trying to figure out what would I do in this scenario if it were to happen, right? You're a safe driver. But when your friends confront you on the idea that it might not be a good idea to text while you're driving, you don't see the problem. Not only is it illegal to text while you're driving, it is really unsafe because when you text while you're driving, you know it's illegal, and so you have your phone down by your knee so that it's not in plain eyesight of the police officer, and so you're doing this and you're trying to type letters in, right? And you're convinced you're a safe driver. Well, if you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, you just might be a duck. I wish I could say that I am not guilty of the second one. I may have done it a couple times. Okay, it's my wife's biggest frustration about me. I do it a lot. But I'm starting to stop today. <laughs> <laughs> All of us can relate to being hypocritical at times. Uh, that is why we can relate to these illustrations. Today we're going to look at a passage that challenges us to think through and, and, and just really think through, are we being spiritually hypocritical? Are we being spiritually hypocritical? We'll take a look at what authentic faith, uh, we'll take a look at when authentic faith is lacking and when it is flourishing. We'll see when faith is fake and when it is real what true faith looks like, and what it is not. 
Would you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2? James chapter 2. If you're new with us today and you can't find the book of James, it's really small. It's towards the end of your Bible. And I would encourage you to flip through that first page or second page in your Bible. It has an index. It'll tell you the page number. Most of us here who have been coming for a while can't find the book of James, but we're so stubborn it takes us like 10 minutes. Instead of just going to that index page, we take 10 minutes to find it. If I encourage you at the very beginning just to go to that index page, it'll make your life that much easier. Unless you have the fancy tabs on your Bible, but that's like a $200 Bible, so anyway. James chapter 2 uh, is what we're looking at. We'll, look, starting with, uh, we'll be looking at 14 to 26, but we'll start with 14 to 17. Let's read together. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. The first thing we're going to look at is when authentic faith is lacking. When authentic faith is lacking, what does, it, what does inauthentic faith look like? Number one, inauthentic faith advocates for faith without works. It's the belief that I can have faith and yet nothing has to happen after that. I can believe in Jesus, Christ on the cross, died, crucified, resurrected, and then nothing changes in my life. I live almost the exact same way today, even after knowing Christ, than I did years before I knew Christ. Nothing's changed. Is that faith able to save him? You know what's interesting? In our English language, we have to determine, uh, uh, for instance, we determine sarcasm, hyperbole, um, uh, rhetorical questions. We determine all that stuff by context. Uh, we just say it, and you can tell by my voice inflection, or you can tell by the way I'm saying something, whether or not something is affirmative or, or not. All right? And sometimes in Greek, we get a little hint. For instance, this question is written in a negative fashion. It, it, it has a, a negative answer in the question. And so there is no, there's not left to doubt what he's trying to say. He's basically saying, you're going to answer this question in the negative. That's what he's saying. All right? It might be said this way. Uh, this faith can't save him, can it? So he's saying for sure, the faith that, that, that we're talking about here that says there's no works afterwards, that can't save you. That type of faith doesn't save you. He's being sarcastic. He's being hyperbolic. He's being rhetorical. The sentence is written in a construction that demands a negative answer. And if we think of it theologically, it just makes sense to us. I mean, if you understand theology, if you've been in our church, you probably will understand a lot of this. Uh, faith has less to do about me than it has to do with God. My faith in God has less to do about me than it has to do with God. What do I mean by that? I mean, he chose me before the foundations of the earth. He chose me to be a believer. He's the one who opened my eyes to sin. We believe that left in ourselves, in our sinful, with our sin nature, and with Adam's sin's guilt on us, that left by ourselves, we would absolutely never choose God. Never. If he just let us be and said, here, you have free will, what would I choose? Every time I would choose sin. Unless he illumines me and changes my heart from the inside out and allows me to see myself the way he sees me, I can't even see that I'm in sin. So in that sense, all of humanity is floating down a river to disaster, and all of them think it's great. 
God's on the sidelines saying, hey, come to know, why would I do that? This is great. This is a great ride. But what they don't know is at the very end is a waterfall that would lead to their disaster. God has to illuminate our minds and say, you know what? You are in a sinful state. So God illuminated my mind to let me know that I'm in a sinful state. Not only did he do that, then he illuminated me and gave me faith to believe in Jesus. Because I can realize I'm in sin and still not want him. So he had to come inside and say, okay, you're in sin and you need a desire to know God. He did all of that in me. He produced the faith that I have in me. He produced the repentance that I have in me. Everything belongs to him. I can take credit for none of it. It's all him. And so he chose me. He opened my eyes to sin. He opened my eyes to salvation. He regenerated me. And then, this is where we go. This is where we lose it for some reason. And then he carries that faith out into completion. If he's the one who saved me, why do we have a problem with him changing my life and making me a different person? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He changes us from the inside out. He produces a new being in us. We are a different person to where Paul can say we're a new creation. So if he, if he saves us and he produces life change, wouldn't it make sense that we would expect to see life change after you're saved? If you have kind of a come-to-Jesus moment, could I not expect that God's going to change your life after that? The answer is, of course, of course. What I'm describing to you right now is, is, is called the lordship debate, without using the big term. Made famous by John MacArthur and Zane Hodges. They, they wrote um, competing books, several of them, actually. The ones they're most known for is John MacArthur's The Gospel According to Jesus, and uh, Zane Hodges' Absolutely Free. John MacArthur, in his book, is criticized for adding works to salvation to taking our faith-based salvation and adding works. That's the critique on him. Zane Hodges is criticized for embracing an easy believism, meaning just believe in Jesus. Um, I could show you quotes from his books. Just believe in Jesus, and if you turn, or turn away from God and never live for him again and die for him and deny that you even know him, you're still saved. That's, that's, that's his view. I'm going to his, the school that he teaches at right now, and I can't believe, you know, it's such a conservative school, and yet um, that's what they're known for as far as, as, far as um, his view there. And a lot of Christianity actually kind of embraces some of it. MacArthur came in and said, wait a second, no, 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 this can't be. This can't be. There's too many scriptures like James chapter 2. There's too many scriptures in 1 John. There's too many scriptures in, in the gospel. Uh, deny yourself, follow me. There's all these, how can, how can it be that we wouldn't expect works after your salvation? But you see, he believes, and we would probably be in the MacArthur camp as a church, he believes that the very repentance that we have is produced by God. The very faith that we have is produced by God. Now, this is, this is really, for me, when I, when I I'm, I'm, you know, as, as, as a boy raised up in a, in, a, in a workspace tradition, going to church, then I started coming to Valley, and all you guys would talk about is how salvation is free, salvation is free. All you need to do is believe. Salvation is free. All you need to do is believe. All you need to do is believe. Salvation is free. All you need to do is repent. All you need to do is repent. Salvation is free. All you need to do is, is faith and repent. Faith and repent. What are you guys talking about? That's something sitting there going, you guys talk about how you don't believe in a work salvation, but you tell me I have to have faith and I have to repent. I have to do something. I mean, I was brought up in enough, enough of a, of a works-based, you know, kind of a system that I see works. I get them. 
I understand them very clearly. I understand all the rules. I just, this is what you do. This is what you do. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. And you say it's free, but then you have these two do's you have to do. What do you do with that? It wasn't until I started understanding, wait a second, repentance. Oh, I should have brought those scriptures with me, but there's some passages that talks about how God grants repentance. I'm going to tell you, I think it's 2 Timothy chapter 4, if I'm right, that God grants repentance. That he's the one who gives it to us. He's the one who gives us our faith, Ephesians 2. So I'm not doing anything. In a sense, I'm playing it out in earth, but God is doing it to me. Does that make sense? He's doing it to me. So if God has the power to save, he also has the power to produce works in the individuals that he saves. But who's the active agent? He is the active agent. I remember when I was coming to faith at this church... <laughs> I don't know how many stories I'd actually share, before, you know, of this kind of stuff. But, you know, I'd be playing basketball outside with Ted Montoy, who was a youth pastor, and all these guys. You're still around here who are, who are youth staff. And um, we'd be playing basketball, and in the midst of guys playing basketball, you know, a curse word would come out of my mouth. And again, I was a good kid in a, in a works-based, you know, kind of, kind of a religion that I grew up in. And, and so I knew that I shouldn't be cussing, number one. And number two, I certainly shouldn't be cussing in front of the pastor, Right? So I'm playing basketball, and I miss a shot, and, you know, a word would come out. And at the time, I didn't think of it as, like, a bad word. I thought of it as, like, an adverb or an adjective or, you know, <laughs> just made the situation. Like, yes, that's what I mean. You know, it just it added to the, to the frustration of the situation, but never meant to the ill will type of thing, right? And I would tell myself, if you, as I'm contemplating, am I going to become a Christian or not in that experiential sense where I'm, kind of searching through all those things. And, and I was thinking, so how could you become a Christian? You can't right now when the pastor is there, you can't stop cussing. The pastor is there and you cuss in front of him. And Ted Monsoy would go, I know the God who can save you from that cussing. And I'm like, well. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying not to cuss, right? And it was one of the stumbling, stumbling blocks for me. I remember thinking to myself, you know what? I'm not going to be able to pull this off. Even if I did come to know Jesus, you know, I would, I'm not going to be able to pull this off. You know, and I remember finally saying, okay, well, I'm going to come to know Jesus, but I don't know what I'm going to do with this cussing. But literally, and this is not to toot my own horn again, if we understand what's going on here, within two weeks, I literally never struggled with cussing again. It's almost like it just fell off, all right? Now, God can do that. God can do that. He can just, because he's the active agent. He comes inside of me. Now, all of our sin doesn't happen that way, or else I'd be perfect right now, or else you'd be perfect right now. And looking at you, you're not perfect. So the... We have times that there's some things for some reason that just fall off, and then some things we have to work on a little bit more, all right? But we're all going in the same direction. We're getting every day, every year, I, 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 I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be either, right? So we're moving in the right direction. James goes on to demonstrate not only what people with inauthentic faith believe, but also what they do. Let's look at verse 15. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, and be well fed, does not, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? You know what? Inauthentic faith is disingenuous. Inauthentic faith is, is, is dis disingenuous. Literally, the characterization of this person is poor clothing. We could literally say naked. Now, I don't know if James was using, overstating the situation to em emphasize something or, or if the person was really naked, but the idea is this person is in drastically in need of something. 
And not only is it a person, it's a believer. A believer comes to another believer drastically in need, and this response they get is, go in peace. Depart, go in peace. In fact, he uses three imperatives. He commands them, go in peace. It's a standard Hebrew farewell. I wish you well. And, and, and warm yourself. I'm commanding you to warm yourself. And I'm commanding you to, to be fed. Go in peace. Warm yourself. Be fed. I'm commanding this on you. I think James is trying to illustrate the absurdity of the situation. Is that the best response you have for a fellow believer? You, can, you command them to have their daily needs, and yet you know that they cannot do so. It literally would be like seeing an infant drowning in the pool and telling the infant to swim. Swim. Save yourself. When you know the infant can't swim and you do nothing about it, inauthentic faith is disingenuous. And finally, inauthentic faith is dead. Look at verse 17. The same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. All James is trying to do in this whole section is, is, is tell us it's, that in this sense, faith and works are inseparable. They cannot be separated. They work together. Works will always follow true faith. And true faith never fails to produce works. They're interlinked. He doesn't deny there's a type of faith there, but it's just not a saving faith if it doesn't have works. It's almost like having two sides of a quarter. Every quarter has a heads and a tails. And if you happen to come across a quarter that doesn't have a heads or it doesn't have a tails, you probably have a counterfeit quarter, right? Same way with our faith. There should be a faith side and a work side. And if one of them is missing, you probably are counterfeit because God produces the works and the people that he produced faith in. You see, we take credit too much of our own. Yeah, you know, I went through all these faiths. I went through Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, and, and Muslim, and all this stuff. And I came to Jesus is the most, I used to hear this all the time when I was in L.A. Jesus is the most reasonable faith. Huh. Boy, you really figured it out, didn't you? You're something. You did all that study, and you came to that conclusion. Who gets the credit for all that? Biblically, God produces all that. God is the one who does it all. We take this, this work of salvation and we make it a decision that we do, right? That's what we do. We make it a decision that we do, and we miss the fact that it's a miracle that God's doing inside of you. It's a miracle inside of you. And if he's doing a miracle inside of you, then why couldn't he produce works too? If he's already done a miracle to save you, then why would it, it's easy to jump to the conclusion, you know what, he might actually change my life too. He might make me a different person as well. So now we know the inauthentic, what inauthentic faith looks like, but we're going to look at what authentic faith looks like now. What does it look like when faith is flourishing? When faith is flourishing, what does authentic faith look like? Let's look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. I believe that there is one God. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the believe, demons believe that and shudder. You know what he does? He starts off with sarcasm. You show me your faith without works. By the way, it's not possible. It's not possible to have faith without works. If it were, then faith, all faith would be would be a mental assent to something. Okay, so mentally I agree to this position. That's all faith would be if there wasn't works weren't tied to it. 
And then he says, let me prove to you that mere intellectual assent to facts can't save you. Do you realize that the demons believe in God and shudder? Now, this is a very Jewish concept here. Jews would know the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. They would get that. The Lord is one. And you know what he says? Demons believe that. Demons believe in a monotheistic God. Demons believe in the one and only God. They know him to be there. They believe that he is the God. They're right. And not only that, they fear this God. So they, here you have beings that believe in the one and only God, and they fear God. And yet, are they in heaven? Are they in heaven? Just out of curiosity. Anybody believe demons are in heaven? So you have beings that can believe in God, the one and only monotheistic God, and they can fear him and yet not be in heaven. What's his point? Intellectually accepting a theological position does not assure you of heaven. If that didn't convince him, he said, let me prove it to you further. Let's look at verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that your faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. It's important. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that, that says, Abraham believed God, and it was a credit to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. And then we have this verse here that's difficult. You see that a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. We'll deal with that difficult section in a second. But first, let's look at the example, Abraham. Again, he's got to have Jewish people in his mind. He's, he's going to use, he used Abraham. He's going to use Rahab. He's going to use death in, in a Jewish mindset. And, he, and he, used, he, he alluded to the Shema. He's got Jews in mind. And he uses their, their, their great forefather, Abraham. And he basically says, look, there's three things that happen to you when faith is working together with your works. Kind of a cool thing. They're all written in the passive. They're all written in the passive form. Look at verse 22. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. When your faith and your works are, 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 are working together, your faith will be made complete. The, the word complete is the same idea for perfection, the same idea for um, maturity. So when, you, when faith and works are working together, you will be brought to maturity. That's written in the passive sense. That happens to you. God does that to you. He'll bring you to maturity. Number two, it was credited to him as righteousness. When your faith and your works are, are, are brought together, you receive credit for righteousness. Number three, God calls you his friend. Another passive. He allows you to be his friend. It brings you to maturity. He credits you righteousness. It's not yours. And he allows you to be his friend. And then we have this hard, difficult passage here. You see that a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. The question here is, is James kind of arguing with another biblical author, Paul? You see, Paul in Romans 4, 2 says, and if, in fact, Abraham, again, using the same individual, was justified by works, he had something to boast about and not before God. And Paul argues for justification by faith alone. And here it looks like James is arguing for justification by works in faith. So what do we do? Well, we have to ask the question, is Paul really against works? Is he really against works? Why don't you turn to me? Go, go to another section. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. 
Ephesians chapter 2. Is Paul really against works? Is that his position? That a, a believer, that we shouldn't expect works from a believer, someone who came to know Jesus, that we couldn't expect to see works of validation? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says this. We, for we are God's workmanship. Whose workmanship? God's. Okay, for what? Created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. Which God prepared in advance for what? For us to do. Okay, so we have Paul saying that we are God's workmanship for what? So we created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us. So is Paul against works? Obviously not. You know what's interesting about this passage is it comes right after 8 and 9, which is what we quote as the, non, the non-work salvation. Look at this. Go to 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not of yourself, but a gift of who? God. Not by what? Works so that no one can boast. So not by works. And then verse 10 says, guess what? God will produce works. So what he's, all Paul is saying, listen, I'm not against works. I just don't want you to confuse them as the basis of your salvation. You see, Paul is, is, is battling two different things. Paul and James are battling two different things. Paul is battling legalism, the idea that I can work myself on my own accord with my own works, I can work myself to heaven, in which case we would not need Jesus. Why did Jesus come then? So legalism says I can work myself to heaven, and he's combating it. No, 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 no. You'll never get there on your own accord. You're always going to need the blood of Jesus to get to heaven. Now, James is on a completely different thing. He's combating a completely different issue. He's combating easy believism, the idea that you can come to faith, never change a thing in your life, and be saved, that God wouldn't change you, that you would just be the the same today as you were 10 years ago when you weren't saved. And he's saying, no, that can't be either. If that's your faith, then you got the wrong faith. If that's your faith, then that's not true faith. It's not authentic faith. Both, however, would agree on this. True faith always finds validation in deeds. And true faith is found in Christ alone. James then turns to two final examples. First, Rahab. Go to 25. Oh, go back to James 2. Let's go to verse 25 of of James 2. You should have kept your finger on it if you really were a student of the word. All right, uh, verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab a prostitute considered righteous for what she did? when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? The obvious answer is yes. His whole point in these these illustrations, Abraham and Rahab, faith works together with works. That's his whole point. And finally, he goes to death. This is, again, another Jewish concept here. As the body, in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's a very Jewish concept to think uh, physical death happens when the body is separated from the spirit. If body is separated from spirit, you have physical death. I don't, I don't know how it can get any clearer. He's saying if, if faith are separated from works, then that's death. It's not real faith. It's fake. Faith and works are inseparable. True faith works together with works. Now, it's important for me to reemphasize here. I grew up in a, in a faith, ba- or in a, sorry, in a works-based system. And I'd hate for anybody to leave confused. We're not talking about earning your way to heaven. We're not talking about you being good enough that all of a sudden God can look at you and say, you're good enough to be in my presence. We're talking about the fact that God 
is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who gives me salvation. And after he gives me salvation, he also validates that faith. Just so you know that this is my child, watch this. I'm going to have him overcome this and overcome that. I'm going to give evidence to his faith. I'm going to give evidence that it is me working in his life. I'm going to validate him. It's my stamp of approval. I will authenticate that believer. That's what's going on here. Now, we have the ability to say, okay, God, no, no, no more. See this wall right here? I've seen enough. I don't want any more. Don't change me anymore. We have the ability to stop him at times, but a true believer won't stay in that state because that's a description of a non-believer. That's a description of somebody who doesn't have the Spirit of God living in them. So in that sense, guys, salvation and sanctification are linked. They're linked together. God will show up. Authentic and true faith flourishes as God produces both faith and works as a byproduct in our lives, which brings us back to the statement at the beginning. If you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, you just might be a duck. You see, it's a statement we use to illustrate the idea that you aren't necessarily what you say you are, but you are what you do. It shows that labels aren't the measure of a true identity, but actions are. If you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, you just might be a duck. What do your actions say about you? What would the people closest to you say about you? Does your life scream out Christianity? Would your friends describe you as a person who lives their life for Jesus? best way I can illustrate this is this right here. Here I have a ball on a string. What I'm going to do is I'm going to spin the ball. And this is going to represent the Christian life. This is the pattern of the Christian life going in this direction. Now as believers we know because of First John chapter 1 that we will have sin in our life. Anybody says they do not have sin is a liar. So we still mess up. That mess up looks like this. See that how it changes the trajectory a little bit of the ball? Right? Changes the trajectory. But we're still going in the same general pattern. This is the Christian life. Sometimes I have slip-ups. Sometimes I make a mistake. Changes my trajectory a little bit, but I'm still going the pattern of the Christian life. The problem is when we have somebody who says they're a Christian, and this is their life. There's no slip-up in mind here. This is living the opposite way than God has set up for us. This person probably doesn't have faith in Christ, but think they do. If you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, you just might be a duck. Unless, of course, you're a duck suffering from identity crisis. 